a second parcel here and it's not ringing enough for me. Sure. Alrighty. Well, let's do this. Welcome, Khan. I want to turn the floor over to Yuko here because I think this is the first time you and I have met. Um, so I want to sort of, I want to have you introduced by somebody who knows you um, really well and we'll go from there. But welcome. Oh, okay. Hi, Khan. So sure, Khan sure. is Hi. a great friend of mine who is the director of Antigua and Barbuda Ministry of Culture. He is a former NIU student, uh, NIU graduate assistant in, uh, for the Steel Pan program. Khan is the leader, arranger of Hell's Gate Steel Orchestra. Uh, yeah, the musical director. Musical director. Not, not, uh, the, not the leader, the leader. Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you for correcting yeah, yeah. that. Um, you're a performer, teacher, you do all kinds of stuff. So we're so happy to have you uh, with us and we can't uh, wait to hear what you have to share with us today. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, so maybe, you know, you can first start with you know, when you started playing the pan and I mean, you started doing so many things at early age. So yeah, tell us all about that. Oh, so when I first started playing, uh, the intention was not to play. We in Antigua at the grade six, which is the last level at the primary school, um, you know, you write a, an exam. And that will determine your placement going into secondary school. Uh, the day uh, of that exam, you know, when we finished the last exam, one of my colleagues played steel pan with Hell's Gate. Um, you know, he invited me to the panel. To be honest, I can't recall knowing much about the steel pan prior to that. Um, but, you know, it was something to do. We had to the exam was finished. I was confident that I was going to go to grammar school, which is at the time was one of the leading institutions here in Antiguan Philips. Um, so I, I went to the panel I asked my mom if I can go. She said, well, once they're going to bring you back home, because she knows they practice late at night, once they're going to bring you back home, so you don't have to walk home. Because I don't live far from the panel. I think maybe mm, five to seven minutes walk from the panel. So it's really not, not, not a far distance. Um, but she didn't want me to walk on the road at 12 in the night. Right, I was I was 11, just about to be 12. Um, so, you know, I went to the panya that night, but I had no intentions of playing. It was just getting out the house. There's nothing else there to do. Um, when I got there, at the time, Hellskit used to practice in one of the community parks uh, in Antigua, in that village. Uh, so they were there on on the park in their sections because they were learning new music. Um, I remember one of the members invited me to play, uh, but I was not interested. Um, then they came back again, you know, you sure you don't want to play? Um, there's something that Hellsgate does, and they still do it even up to today. So once you're around the panyard, especially if you're a young person, they're going to invite you to play, even if you didn't come with that intention. It's something that they do all the time. So most of the people who play with us, um, who start playing with us, they never, they just came, they saw a lot of young people there you know, having fun and they're just standing up looking uh, and we invite them to play, you know, <laughs> that's one of our, that's one of the things that we do. Um, but I, I still wasn't um, interested in playing, I was just listening uh, and there was a young lady that came to me last and she's like, you know, you don't have to play for the competition, but you can just come and learn the instrument. And 
I went, you know, again, not with the intention of playing for the competition because they were practicing for a panorama. That's what they were doing. Um, our panorama is in the summer. It normally happens like towards the end of July. Um, so I went and I was practicing. And I can remember uh, between that first night and the night before the competition, uh, at the time, Hellsgate didn't have any chrome double tennis. I was playing in the double tennis section. And that was back in 2002, by the way. Um, they didn't have any chrome double tennis because they've lost all of their pants in a hurricane that happened just a few years before, right? So they had to basically rebuild. Uh, so they started obviously with painted pants, um, single tennis was for some of the first uh, chrome pants that they, they got back, but they lost everything in uh, 1995 in Lewis. Um, so, you know, the night before the competition, I came, I went to the, the dentist, I came to practice late. And when I got there, the captain who was in the double tennis section was setting up two chrome, new, brand new chrome double tennis fans. Uh, so I went into the room for my fan. And he's like, you know, no, 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 this one is yours. And so I played right in front <laughs> next to him uh, for the panorama, that same panorama. And yeah, it was an amazing experience. Um, when I got on the stage, I was extremely nervous that first year. Uh, I honestly did not remember playing the panorama tune. I remember when we were done, I asked the guy, the captain, you know, who was Stafford Joseph, um, that's Aisha's father, actually, Hugo. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I asked him, did I play anything? Because I don't remember anything. The song started and it ended. That's all I remember. You know, so I asked him, yeah. He said, like, yeah, you played everything. You played everything perfectly. Yeah, okay, good. You know, muscle memory definitely kicked in there because I was not cognizant of what was going on. So I was in shock, really. But that is how it started. Um, and I played pretty much... Uh, for the first two or three years, just over the summer period, just for the competition. Uh, I think sometime in 2004, I started um, playing a bit more regularly with the band, joining the state side around that time. Um, and it took off from there. In 2006, the early part of 2006. Uh, yes, the early part of 2006. Joined, we were invited to the National Youth Pan Orchestra. Uh, that was headed by a lady named Barbara Mason, who's not a fan player at all. She's never played the instrument, but she has uh, always been an avid lover of the instrument. And she was tasked with sort of reviving the instrument for young people. And she did an amazing job with it, inviting us. So she, she would go around to the different schools and the different community bands and scout young talent to join this National Youth Talent Orchestra. Um, and I was one of those members. And it's there is where I started learning much more about the instrument, um, especially from a point of what is happening outside of Antigua and Barbuda. Because at the time, you know, I know Pan existed uh, outside of Antigua, but I just wasn't aware of the Len Booty Shafts, the Ray Harmon, the Rudy Tulef Smith, the Cliff Alexis, you know, the Andy Narrells <laughs> of the world. I, I, I wasn't aware. I just thought, well, Antigua is where it was, because that's all I knew. Um, and I met. Um, Gav, that's where I met Gavin Francis, and he started telling me about, you know, you should check out Boogie, because I was playing double second, you know, go check out um, Len Boogie Shah, you know, go check out Liam T, and that is where, you know, fell in love with them and started doing a lot of transcribing, um, but not the way that I transcribed, no, it was just, you know, listening to them and then trying to play back exactly what they would have played. I spent many, many hours at night, especially Boogie Shah, just listening to a lot of his music, 
anything that I could have found on YouTube at the time, that's what I was playing. Um, you know, then learning about Liam Teague and I remember asking one of the guys here, you know, how is it people get, um, how do you get good at, at playing? And one guy said, you know, well, with Bukti Shah, they used to pay him to practice. I don't know how to write it. But that is what they said. They used to pay Len Boogie Sharp to practice and used to practice all day. So I said, okay, I need to practice all day as well. But I mean, I was going to school. Um, so I'd go to school for like eight in the morning and then I'd come back and do my national youth pan auction in the afternoon, then help get in the evening. And then from about maybe nine until four or five in the morning, the next morning, uh, I would be practicing just outside in the uh, the backyard, just practicing, practicing. Um, my mom got a little upset after a while because I mean, it was early morning and I'm there playing music. So I started um, just wrapping my stick to felt, felt, sorry. Um, I removed the rubber completely and just used felt. So it, you don't hear much, you know, that's how I got through practicing those long six to eight hour days. Uh, and I used to play a lot. That's really what it was, just trying to, to get there, you know, trying to be uh, not like them, but trying to get to a point where I feel like I've made some sort of progress. Uh-huh. So were you in school steel bands as well? Because I know there are lots yes. of school steel bands in Antigua. So Yeah, I started, I mean, 2006 was an amazing year. That's the year that I also joined the um, school steel band um, as well. Uh, I So I joined the school steel band, we entered competition. The same year I entered the national year, I joined the National Youth Panel Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I was with the community band, playing far more regularly. We should play in the hotels and things like that. Um, again, with the school steel band, with the National Youth Pan Orchestra. In 2006 is when we traveled to represent Antiguan Barbuda in the OECS. We had an OECS um, junior panorama competition in 2006, and Antigua won that one. Um, there, yeah. And in 2006 as well, we went to Trinidad. And I was I had the opportunity of meeting and speaking with Len Bugdisha. Nice. And that's where he shared with me two of my, you know, most favorite um well it's actually one album, but it's a two part disc. Um, Face Two's World Music. Mm-hmm. And I still listen to that 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 album even up to today. Yeah. I was actually transcribing a bit of it last week. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And eventually oh sorry, oh, no, go, no, ahead. No, go ahead, you go, go ahead. Oh no! I was just gonna say, like, so eventually you went to UWE uh, to get your mm. uh, to your undergraduate, and then went to NIU for your graduate studies. Yeah, well, that's a, a little interesting story. So I, you know, I don't come from you know rich background. So going to university would have been something that I've always dreamt about. I never thought about you know going to MIT or going to Harvard or. NIU was nowhere in my vocabulary. UE was nowhere in my vocabulary. Um, when I met Barbara Mason, though, there are quite a few things that she taught me. So when we met her in 2006, uh, 2007, you know, same group, she's always, um, you know, I've always sat down with her and she'd be like, you know, can I want you to go and perform here? I'd be like, okay. I was just soup. Anybody that wants, well, we say soup. I was just very excited about playing. So somebody would say, you know, I need somebody to play the anthem. I'm there. Just pick me up from my house and I'm good. You know, they want somebody to do a short performance here. I want to do it. So that, that was it. And she would always sort of say, you know, 
can't, well, you know, when you go to these performances, you have to dress nicely, you have to you know, have manners, you have to, she would even invite me to her home and teach me like simple table manners. She's like, you know, suppose somebody calls you to play in England, then you'd need to be able to hold your knife and fork properly and that kind of stuff. And then she started telling me, you know, can you need to get out of Antigua? You need to get out of Antigua. You need to go to university. I was like, you know, I've always dreamt about going to university. Nobody in my family has ever been to university. Um, so it would, it would be, you know, it's a dream. Again, I never thought about being Stanford. I never thought about where it was and what it was going to be because music was not something that I was interested in as a career. And that in itself is a story. What were you interested? Right? What were you interested in? Sorry. Well, if like if if, um, if you had never been, it was, and just so I'm clear, was it Barbara Mason with the National Youth Pan Orchestra? Right. Right. So her. let's let's just yeah. say Barbara Mason had never come into your life. Like you'd have just taken a left turn when she was coming down the the, the hallway, and just you'd never met her. In that moment, yeah. what would would have been your dream job? What were you wanting to do? Accounting. Wait. Ooh. Shut. All right. Podcast over. Accounting. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that I say yeah, that yeah, I know yeah. a few I know a few accountants for whom when it's when they are in that world it's they they approach it the same way Bugsy approaches a panorama like like there's yeah. there's some sort sort of peace or solace with numbers and I'm just not that guy yeah. like so I'm kind of curious like yeah, how did yeah. you go um, you know I'm actually very good with numbers like extremely good with numbers I mean. I always uh, loved maths in school. Uh, when it got to like algebra and you know uh, all of those higher learning stuff, it kind of got a bit hazy for me. But in terms of just numbers, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, seeing numbers, remembering numbers, um, you know, just dissecting things like that, I, I'm very good at that, and I've always been very good at that. I mean, I've always been um, prior to 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 music. Uh, you know, 2008, 2009, going to university, I was always an academic student. So, you know, passing the top in my zone, top in the school, that kind of thing. Mm. And when I went to grammar school, I got a, a slightly different appreciation. But in terms of careers, I wanted to be a police officer initially when I was much younger. And that's because my dad was a police, right? So, you know, I sort of looked up to him. He is a musician as well. And he's always been, he plays saxophone, um, plays guitar, plays bass. Um, so, I've, you know, he actually tried to teach me music when I was really young and I just was not interested. Um, the only time I really started learning music and playing instruments is when I started to play pan back in 2002, when I was 11, just about going to be 12. Um, after going to grammar school, I found this love for um, accounting. And I think it had to do, you know, at the time my mom kept saying, you know, I, you know, I want you to go and work in the bank because she has this thing where you know, once you work in a bank, you'll be fine. You know, these bank, bank, these bankers tend to do well. And, you know, so she wanted me to work in a bank. And I just love numbers. I love accounting. I mean, I didn't want to get into physics and that kind of stuff. Though I did physics, you know, um, uh, in secondary school. Uh, so I went to state college all this time again. I'm playing pan now. I'm learning about all of these external forces. The, Bukti Sharks, the, uh, um, well, I didn't know Otolo Molina at the time, but Andy Narell was a big one as well. And around that same time, Andy Narell came to Antigua, and Bukti Sharks came to Antigua as well for, for Moses Fan. You know, so I was able to hear them play and be like, yo, yeah, you know, this is it, this is it. So starting to learn, you know, one of the things I loved with, with my band, Hell's Gate, when we went to these gigs, I was able to, to sort of, you know, the, do these cadenzas in between and before songs, they would allow me to do that. You know, so I started loving it. 
uh, I was at State College, which is a tertiary level institution here. It's like a um, sixth form. I went, US uses a different system. Yeah. Um, but I was uh, 18, 17, 18, and, you know, I'm in this class, this accounting class with 90 something people, right? And that's just one of two classes at that institution. And there are multiple institutions that are learning accounting at that level in Antigua. And I looked around the room and I said, man, I'm going to have to compete with all of these people for a job. You know what? Let me start focusing on music. <laughs> then that's when I started, you know, um, looking more at the music side. Barbara Mason then said, yeah, you need to get out of Antigua. Um, so I was originally supposed to go to uh, FMU, Florida Memorial. Mm -hmm. oh. We started conversations with um, Don Batson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so the idea was for me to do my first degree. Well, I had no intentions of doing my second degree. It's just, you know, just going to university was a dream. So, you know, we started having conversations about FMU. Uh, so it was going well. And then I think Miss um, Batson got pregnant and went on maternity leave. So the entire conversation broke down. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at UE as an option. The UE came through, the government was willing to uh, pay for me to go to university. So I was actually the first student here in Antigua to get a scholarship uh, for PAM to study music um, here. And since then, many others would have gone and are still going today. Um, I went to UWE and what's funny, again, remember I said I, I don't know anything about NIU. I, I have no clue what NIU is at, at that point in time. I met Dr. Anne Osborne. Okay. And this is in my first year. Uh, she taught us a class. Uh, what was the name of that class, boy? Uh, or oral training, oral oral training one and two. Um, and she's like, when she first met me, she said, you know, Kang, you have very good ears. You have very good ears. And then, you know, we go to classes like, you know, Kang, you're very, very good. You're very different. I think you need to consider going to NIU. I did not know what NIU was, so I just didn't even bother with what you were saying. You know, I was like, you know, I'm I'm living my dream right now. I am at university. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm fine. No, I mean, the world can come to an end right now and good. I've gotten to university, the grass is actually green, like in the pictures, and happy. <laughs> right? I'm enjoying myself. Um, and then, you know, what's funny, who really pushed um, the NIU narrative was really Dr. Remy. Yeah. Right? And even then, I mean, some strange things have happened in my life. Right, because meeting Dr. Remy was a mistake. It really was a mistake. It, it was a mistake, and I'll tell you why. Uh, so when we went to, you have to sign up to do individual lessons with, with an instructor, right? When we got to the school, the orientation that we had was with a Caucasian lady, right? And it was actually Miss Ramla. I don't know if you know Miss Ramla. Um, she's at UWE, but she's a Caucasian. What's her first name? um kelly kelly Ramla. okay okay fine well, so she's the one that um that was uh that gave us the orientation so it's like you know this lady's really nice very pleasant i think i want to be my my instructor so we go to the sign up um board and when you get to the sign up board you have um all of the names of the instructors and I could not remember her name. Like, for, I could, all I remember is starting with an R. 
That's all I remember. <laughs> so I'm looking at the list and I'm saying, you know, Ramlal sounds like an Indian name, so it can't be this. And then there are other like more common um, Africa, Afro-Caribbean names. So I was like, no, these aren't what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a Caucasian lady. And I saw a Remy. I said, you know, this, this looks like it. So I signed up for, for this class. So I go to my first session and I walk inside and I'm looking at her. She's looking at me and I'm like, I don't think I'm in the right space. She's like, really? Who are you looking for? I said, were you here for the orientation? She's like, no, I just came back yesterday or something like that. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I think I'm in the wrong class. She's like, you know what? It's okay. I don't know you, but play. And if you're good, I'll keep you. If you're not good, I'll pass you off to the next, oh, <laughs> the next teacher. So then I played. I don't remember what I played. It was just something random. And she's like, I'm definitely going to keep you. And that's mm-hmm. how I ended up with Dr. Remy. And uh-huh. Dr. Remy has really pushed me through that entire few years and really groomed me for, for, for NIU. Um, she's the one that every, every semester, you know, you need to go to NIU. You know, mm-hmm. In my second year, you know, I need to introduce you to Cliff. I need to introduce you to Cliff. But mm-hmm. she knows about NIU. You know, I, I couldn't have any clue um, what NIU. And then Yuko mm-hmm. and Cliff came to my, my recital. Recital. That, that I didn't get any credit for, by the way, because it's not something that the school did. Um, at UWE, you do a, a thesis for your final submission as opposed to a thesis, okay. as opposed to a, a recital. But what, what she said, there's something that they wanted to start. So they sort of used myself and, and my colleague who was with me, Mikkel, as a guinea pig. We still had to do our recital, our 10,000 word um, thesis. Sorry. We still had to do our 10,000 word thesis. Uh, but, you know, I must say, you know, Dr. Remy would have pushed me immensely throughout that few years, exposing me to a lot of things. And certainly, um, that's how I found the NIU. That's how I found the NIU, you know, and I'm so happy. Well, Con, Con can, I ask, can I ask you, like, um, I mean, I'm just, everything you're saying to me is like, I wish, I wish, I feel like we need to take these last five minutes of what you just said and, like, put it out as, like, a tutorial for students and teachers. Because... Everything you're saying to me is like you were a student who is just uh, constantly curious, like, you know, trusting, but curious, like you couldn't remember the name. So you didn't just give up. You were like, I'll go here. And then when that person was like, I don't know who, who you are, you're like, OK, I'll stay up. like. But as a teacher, Janine Remy also or Dr. J- Dr. Right. Dr. Janine Remy. Yeah. Dr. Remy, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Remy didn't say didn't just turn you like this is there's like sliding door moments that happened all along the way if you'd have just decided to be like i can't remember that person's name i'll go do something else like all these little decisions like don't seem like big ones in the moment but when you look back it's like you would not have met yuko if dr Reddy yeah. had been like you're not in my class That's for sure. you know like That's you're not, and i'm not saying you'd be in the gutter sure. and would be homeless or anything crazy but like just it's so wild to me that all of this stuff you're yeah. saying are just little moments of like human interaction that like a woman sitting down with you and showing you which knife to use like that's yeah. like you could have been like i don't care about that that's not important you were just yeah. like well this may be something i'll need and you like anyway but my main question yeah. is like once you started experiencing pan outside of antigua and barbuda like what were some of the things that that uh and that were sort of like oh whoa that's different than what i like for me, when I went to Trinidad the first time, it was hearing cool down versions of of of, of panoramas, like hearing Phase Two play a, a slow version, yeah, yeah, and being yeah, like, 
cool, that's the tune. And then you hear them play it fast. And not being able to know that they were playing it slow, like, because no one played it slow. They played it as if they were playing it fast, but slow, <laughs> you know? Like, and that's a, that's a thing that in U.S. bands, in my experience, and I would say that goes for orchestras, like, or uh, chamber music groups, uh, so percussion is this way. Like, we have a hard time playing things slowly, but with this sort of, like, yeah, yeah no bullshit Same energy yeah but I'm, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's just my experience but like for you what were some of the differences when you got out of antigua that you're like oh wow that's that's a bit different than i thought and it could be an approach it could be in you know programming or whatever uh well if i can start with um closer to home so i started with trinidad um you know pan at the time it was growing in antigua again right so back in the 70s steel pan and calypso was the highlight of carnival um, sometime between the 80, the middle of the 80s into the 19, it 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 didn't go dormant, but it was dying um, for for many reasons. So I won't get into that. So it was it started to rebuild um, in the latter part of the 90s into the 2000s uh, when we started playing. You know, young people were weren't as prevalent as they are now in the steel band because you know it was rebuilding. Um, you know, so they're far more steel band. Um, uh, what they call them, the the oh, school of pants, that's what we call them here, that are attached to the community groups. They're far more now than they were um, 15 years ago. I went to Trinidad um, and you know, it was just amazing seeing how some of the more uh, established bands were set up like businesses as opposed to just somewhere people go and play steel bands. So like, if you know where Yui is, you come out of Yui, St. Augustine, and literally just across the road, there's Exodus on, on, uh, in Tunapuna. And you pass it like, wow, um, damn, like, this is, this is something. You know, that was an, I, an experience for me. You know, and it's much more than just you just coming and playing an instrument or pre preparing for panorama, but it was just year-round business, it's year-round culture, a way of life that they, that they, that they offered. And this this level of um professionalism that they carried out, bands like Exodus, um, All Stars, um, you know, when you see them, there's a something very different that than, than what I'm accustomed to. Um, another thing that was an eye opener, you no, know, me going to Yubi, I always could have read music because I was a part of um choirs um when I was younger. So I could uh, I could have sight sound, but I couldn't sight read on my instruments. Not something that we practiced a lot here. So when I got to you, you know, seeing people reading, you know, I signed up for this class with Jesse, with Jesse Murray. Um, it's what's the name of the class? Uh, it is UV Steel. It's the highest steel ensemble. And I signed up in my first year because Dr. Remy said I should sign up. I went into the class and they put the music in front of us and everybody's playing. And I'm like, wow, yeah, this is not for me. <laughs> You know, so that was, you know, to see them just play, that was an eye-opening eye experience because that's not something that we do here. Most of what we do is via road. Um, so, you know, going there, you know, Dr. Jason Murray, uh, I don't think he's a doctor, but Mr. Murray at the time, he's like, you know, it's up to you if you want to stay, but, you know, you do realize you'd have a lot of work to do. And I felt very intimidated, to be honest, uh, because it's not something I'm accustomed to. So I told him, here's what. I'll work on it for a year and then, you know, uh, I will come try again next year. Only to find out that a lot of the people that were in the group were in the group before 
and they've played some of the songs before. So it was much easier. <laughs> you know, but but I was intimidated, so you know, I tried. I really spent a lot of time that year just sight reading. I even tricked Dr. Remy, don't tell her I say this, hopefully she don't listen to this um, recording. Yeah, I tricked Dr. Remy a lot of times. So what would happen is, because I, I wasn't confident with my sight reading at all, what I would do, she would give me these pieces, three, four, five page pieces, because she would give me like grade six, grade seven, grade eight pieces um, to play. And instead of going home, she says, if you go and work on the first page, you know, work on these areas, I would go and I learn the entire piece. Right. So, so we have class Tuesday this week, Tuesday next week I come, the entire piece I've already learned the piece. But she's like, man, um, you know, you learn these pieces fast, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. The reason I was doing that, I didn't want her to ask me to read the next section. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I learned them all. So she wouldn't say, hey, what? Try and try to read this section and try to, nah, I uh, learned everything. Um, but I spent a lot of time, you know, sight reading in, in Trinidad. Um, I used to practice sight reading like often, regular, speaking to Keon. Keon yeah. And, you know, he was giving me pointers, you know, like, you know, like before you go and actually practice a piece, you know, just find something separate, a separate piece and just work on it. But don't try to memorize it, you know, try reading it, start very simple and just build. So I spent some time doing that. So that was an eye-opening experience for me. Going to the u.s i mean there's some other things but going to the u.s now like stepping into NIU, and you just see everybody just doing amazing things and also i think one of the things that i've admired most about my experience at NIU was the how open everybody was to share um that's something that when i was at NIU, i didn't feel like i had to compete with anybody you know i didn't feel like anybody was trying to compete with me it was just like you know we're all doing this guys who call um, and I play for everybody well you could know I'd be like on every recital when I was at, when I, yeah. at two o'clock in the morning that time what are you doing uh, well I'm just here let's go to the music room and practice you know that kind <laughs> of atmosphere I just absolutely admire but it was just mind-blowing for me you know that people can sit in a space and just function together and just share freely and you know give advice you know that kind of thing and I'm telling you this, that that more than anything else, you know, going to the um, going into the NIU steel band room for the first time, seeing everybody um, in the room and just playing and enjoying the music. Uh, um, Liam's approach towards um, uh, running rehearsals definitely has left an um, indelible mark on me. Uh, that you know, to be able to accomplish so much in such a short space of time. It's like, what, 50 minutes? What? Yeah, 50 minutes. Was... Yeah. yeah, you know, to, to accomplish all of that in such a short space of time, that's as well as an eye-opening experience. Going to, when I started uh, traveling, you know, being guest performer at some of the schools, going to these schools and seeing all these young people at 13, 14, uh, playing uh, steel pan music with their schools. I mean, yes, they would have recited it before, but, you know, they're playing and just love the instrument, just being appreciative of it. I mean, at, sometimes I find that they are more appreciative than we here in the Caribbean of this instrument and what the instrument can do and the possibilities. Uh, I find a lot of times that they, they are always the ones that, you know, can we try this, can we try that? Just very inquisitive about what the possibility can be, you know, what are some of the things that they can do with the instrument? So it's always amazing, you know, seeing 
of the different cultures. I think here in Antigua and in the Caribbean, it comes second nature in most cases. So it's like, you know, yeah, it's steel pan. But when you go to these places, like, wow, it's an instrument, it's a musical instrument, and it can be compared. I mean, in some cases, some persons may love the steel pan more than they love another instrument, just because of how novel it is, obviously. Um, but those are some of the things that, for me, that have been, like, wow moments uh some highlights for me i'm curious the like i you know in my experience like when i if so percussion gets asked to go do a master class or be a, in residence and work with percussion chamber music which is more in my you know my 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 training you know your job in that moment like when you come to the university of akron or you're a guest artist at some other school like your job your job isn't you, you sometimes don't have the time to drill down deep necessarily like you're you have to fix the problems that are the most fixable in that moment and and then you leave and you're like okay cool that that was successful man i think if we could just if they just had this one other thing they could take it to the next level like what and and yuko's been sort of um helping me think more about like things like maybe not even playing but just like the way people talk about the instrument when people say steel pan sticks versus mallets or steel drums versus steel pan i know that lexicon in the united states is fast and loose <laughs> and i'm curious if just like it maybe just lexicon isn't the only thing but like what are what are some things that u.s based bands who do not have a foundation in a culture or cultural foundation like niu does and even i would say the university of akron has constantly been bringing in people from trinidad and so there's at least mm. seeds planted but i think the most bands in the united states in particular and i'm just focusing on them right now just don't have any experience working with anybody from the culture and i'm curious like and there's no value judgment there like if you're in texas sometimes you just don't run across a lot of caribbean folks in the middle of texas like that's okay what are some things that U.S. bands could be thinking about that maybe are like, in your in your opinion, would be like, yeah, just think about these other couple things, and and the thing would grow a lot quicker than it is. Right. Now. Um, so Chilpan is an instrument, uh, but it's also a culture. This is a conversation that we've actually had. Um, some of us, myself, Andrew White, you know, some of the other uh, younger persons, you know, it's so. I mean, yes, we understand that. So you, you, you mentioned the term mallet versus the hamster, right? Um, what I think it's all a part of that experience that you get from the, the panyard. Uh, it's a part of the, what I would refer to as the glossary of steel pan terms, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it just makes the instrument what it is, mm -hmm. right? A lot of these, like, there's a, we have this battle here in Antigua where there's classically trained musicians have a hard time understanding the double tenor. But when you think about tenor, you think uh -huh. about a certain range. Yeah, me right? too, bro. I'm, <laughs> I've, I've played double tenor a few times and I still cannot get my head on to wrap around it. Yeah, you know, um, and then when you say guitar and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, it's just all a part of that culture, part of that history. Mm. I mean, that history that still is less than 100 years old, mind you. Um, so it's still developing, it's still, still so much to go. But it would have moved so fast in that short space of time. Um, uh, one of the other things that I think maybe with some more involvement is that feel. I don't know if that's what you're trying to say, but um, what I get from some of the bands, it's always interesting to hear, you know, two, three different groups play the same song and it seems totally different. Yeah. Right. Um, it's just again all a part of that 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 that, that culture, the, the, the feel culture. I guess you want to use that term. Um, but I think just generally what I've seen um in the bands that i've been around um i mean i've been to texas 
uh, a few places in Texas with the steel bands. Well, I've been to Akron uh, as well. Um, I've been to, um, I've seen a steel band in London. I've seen uh, um, Philadelphia. Oh, I've been to Delaware, right, as well. Um, I've been to some of the, um, the, the church steel band groups, like in the New York Bronx area. And I think just mostly it just has more to do with um, appreciating the culture for what it is. Um, yes, a mallet, when you think about percussion instruments, mallets seem to be the international term. Um, you would never hear anybody refer to the brick drum as the brick drum here in Antigua. Like, what in the world? This brick drum is like this international term that nobody really, but in our culture, it is the iron, or some people refer to it as the steel. Right. Um, in Antigua, I can't speak so much for Trinidad, but in Antigua, um, before the steel band was the iron band. That was the name of our groups, and they still exist today. Um, make, made up of a, you know, a variety of, of, of iron instruments or a variety of great drums of different size, playing different rhythms and that kind of stuff. So the, those are the kind of things. I think it's more from a cultural point of view. Mm -hmm. um, the culture of the instruments uh, where uh, that we probably need to work on. Just appreciate the instrument for what it is, right? Or appreciate the culture for what it is. Um, but it may not be an issue for most people, um, and it's not really an issue for me. But if you're pointing out anything that we read, that would be what it is. No, it's really. I'm glad that those are things. Like I, to me, to me, the feel is always the most obvious thing, and that's something that like it's hard. I've been around enough caribbean folks playing pan that i know what a feel i know when it feels good and when it doesn't but i don't always know how to talk to a band to make it feel good and i've i'm starting to learn that the engine room has almost everything to do with it the feel that the drummer and the like the combination of the engine room has but then that radiates up through the rest of the band but something you mentioned earlier about your own insecurities getting into like when we talk about culture rote teaching is part of the culture and that's been the hardest thing for me to get involved in my teaching in a classical setting where I only have like you go Matt Matt Dudak gave me a little bit of shit the last time we talked about he's like you got plenty of time to teach by rote if you're good at it and I was like yeah I know that but in 50 minutes you may get through the verse and, verse and chorus of a tune if you have the chart you can read through many more now I understand that I understand as a teacher why I have sheet music in front but culturally I think the bands also sound the way they do because when Bugsy's teaching music to you, he's going black out that that that. He's singing out pitches and he's scatting right. stuff to you, and right. then people play exactly what he said. You know, right, there's right, a reason right. triplets in Trinidad don't sound like ba 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 ba. It's ba 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 ba. There's a little lilt to it. That's important yeah. to me, and you don't get that on sheet music. On the other hand, oh. <laughs> on the other hand, it's like also sheet music is how Bugsy's music gets played by other bands in. Washington yeah, State, right. you know, so like, I'm kind of, I don't have a good question here. But like, I guess my question is, how do we balance that as educators? Um, in, um, in classical settings, where most of the students are playing like marimba solos, and they, they have a chart, and they're not being taught right. a marimba solo by rote. And right. then, you know, I think if I were to come and play in Hell's Gate, and you were teaching me the tune by rote, you'd probably stick me in the back, because I'm really slow at rote learning. Like, <laughs> and that's just the truth, you know, but I, I don't have practice at it. So how do you deal with that as an educator? Uh, well, that is, um, well, for here, us here in the Caribbean, that comes a second nature. That's what we do, right? Yeah. Um, uh, as an educator, I've actually had the, the best of both worlds, uh, even here in Antigua, where I have the ability to teach, well, you know, you're running your sessions using scores, but also rote learning. 
What I've been doing, uh, even when I was at NIU, we used to do the university steel band, which is a steel band that has... Uh, um, Beginners, beginning begin university yeah. students, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, maybe music majors that never played the instruments. Yeah. Um, you, there are also some students from other parts of the university that never played instrument at all, you know. It sounds very um, similar to, to the way Princeton steel, Kendall Williams teaches a steel band at Princeton with me and it's all non-musicians who are like right. nuclear science majors and whatever and they, <laughs> you know. So teaching them is a different yeah. thing than teaching the NYU band, you know. Yeah. So with that now, what happens, we always try to make it a part of those sessions. So um, yes, we want to use the scores and we have to use the scores because they also don't retain the information the way that we would because we are accustomed mm -hmm. to learn via rote. Um, but what we do, we find simple songs, you know, Tilili, um, you know, Old Lady Walk a Mile, those simple mm -hmm. songs, and use those simple songs to have them experience that rote learning environment. Yeah. Or what, what I always suggest is if you can, assisted rote learning. So, you know, it's always good to be very vocal, like when you're, you're teaching. So, there may be a phrase here that they're on the score and you just don't think that they're bringing that out the way that you, you want it to sound. Mm -hmm. Then you start to, you know, you start singing it for them. In all of my groups, it's always, I will sing for you and you have to sing it back for me mm. because I strongly believe in that connection between the ear and obviously, you know, what you hear in your head. So, you know, all of my panorama tunes, everybody in the band would be able to sing their entire part from start to finish, right? And it's not just because I want them to sing a song, no. But, I mean, how do you play something effectively if you don't know what it sounds like? And you have to know what it sounds like. Speaking so, my language right now, Khan. You're speaking my language. I was just telling Yuko <laughs> before we logged on that my entire semester at NYU was remote, online. Mm. And so none of them had access to drums. So I would send them a click track with their part in their ear. And they would have to sing their part and send me the recording of them singing. And then I would layer out, I'll send it to you and you please do not share it publicly. You can laugh at it and then put it in the trash. But it was yeah. them, like they had to sing their parts. And when you layer yeah. it up, it sounds like an entire panorama being sung. Now, I don't ever right. want to do that again on that level, like every every week of an entire semester. But your point is reaffirming my the thing I feel like I want to take from it, which is the singing. Like pe the students yeah. may not know where C sharp is on the guitar pan but they know in their head that they're supposed to be singing a C-sharp. And that right, is an right. important step in that right. process. Right. So one of the issues that we normally come across in that is like, you know, there are people, you know, but sir, I can't sing. Mr. Yeah. Khan, I can't sing. You know, but the idea is not for you to sound like uh, Alicia Keys or or um, or uh, Mariah Carey. I didn't want to call him him, but I'm going to call him. <laughs> <laughs> or like Mariah Carey or yeah. Beyonce. You know, that's not the idea. It's just... You know, to, you need to get an appreciation for the sound. And that's where, when you're talking about feel, that's where it comes from. You know, mm -hmm. you have to really understand that sound. I mean, even when you're improvising, I improvise, my sound improvising now is uh, much more different than it was 10 years ago. And it just has something to do with, you know, the type of music that I've been listening to, the type of music I've been trying to internalize, and then in turn, you know, I sing a lot of things, I sing everything, right? So that is really what it is. Um, and I think that, I mean, from a teaching point of view, that is, it can help. I mean, with short um, sessions, I mean, it doesn't leave a lot of room for, um, hey, you know, let us try to do this entire piece by rote. And I understand that um, because most of the steel bands would practice four, five, six hours, you know, in the evening. So they would have time. I mean, in my view, um, sometimes they waste a lot of time too, right? <laughs> Don't say that I said, but at times, but I can understand <laughs> I'll, why. I'll say um, it, Con, and I, they, can, they can be mad at me. Like, I, 
and it's never my place to say that. Like if I'm drilling a steel band, I'm never going to be like, hey, we're wasting time here. But mm. the rote teaching method does, there's built into it is chaos. <laughs> like mm. in the way that like sheet music is not. And by the mm. time somebody gets it at the end, they've learned it wrong and it takes it. Anyway, like that's chaotic. Mm. And that yeah. can take so no. What I can tell you, so I, I use a method, uh, I didn't learn it anywhere, I don't know if maybe other people use it. Um, when I became the arranger of Hell's Gate in 2009, I made it, uh, I made a pledge to myself that I needed to change the way we teach music. Mm -hmm. Still viral, route, but I needed to change the efficiency of passing music on to the, um, the players. Mm -hmm. Now, we, I remember my experiences, you know, we are practicing until four o'clock in the morning after coming practice at seven o'clock in the night religiously. Mm -hmm. And what tends to happen is that as um, people get older, they start dropping off because, you know, they have responsibilities or, you know, people just saying, you know, it's just too much time, you know, they just can't manage. And I thought that we needed to find a way to find, to strike that balance. Um, somewhere around 2010, 2011, I started developing, um, uh, well, the way that I teach now, especially to large ensembles. So it's not, I teach the second section leader, section leader teaches person, this person teaches the person. No, that is not how we do it anymore. I teach via sections. So it is, we've moved from practicing six hours a night, seven hours a night to practicing for pretty much most of the season for like an hour and a half, two hours maximum, and still complete the panorama tune before all of the bands here in Antigua Barbuda. Right, set you know certain um, timelines. So I'd say, you know, by a month in, uh, by three weeks in, I want to be at three minutes, and then because usually after you get past that that verse and chorus first arrangement, then the music tends to pick up very fast because you know everybody's now you know they they marinated in the music, they're now they're ready, so it's easy to move forward. And then you also find when you get to the jam and those kind of sections, they tend to be longer. Um, so, you know, they, they eat up some time. But what we've been doing is, so I would go, all of the sections that are playing every, the same thing rhythmically, I do them together. So, um, like Hell's Gate only had six sections, um, single tenor, double tenor, double second, double guitar, cello, bass. That is the makeup of the band. Um, that's how the, um, the former captain wanted it, who is also the band builder. He, he just thought that that was the best, you know, for him. So, if I'm teaching like the flat tune, I would say, okay, we're going to do the entire flat tune. I take you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, sing it in a double tenor, double section, double second, and I will call the notes. I'll sing the phrases. Everybody plays it together. We move on a bit more, um, and we're able to get so much, so much done. I mean, it's something that you really should experience. Um, yeah. A guy said I should write a paper on it <laughs> one of these times, but you know I what I found is that I, I got away from. Exactly what you were saying. By the time it gets to the last person, everybody's playing something different, you know. Um, and to be honest, that method has also allowed me, afforded me the opportunity of having majority of my band in the panyard at the same time, because mm -hmm. nobody wants to learn from the next person. They want to hear it directly yeah. from me, so they make sure that they're there to learn the music when I'm teaching music. Uh, so you know, it has worked for us here. As I said, I mean, um, I always believed, you know. Rather than having two hour, three hour breaks, the people just walk in alignment. Here's what let's get in, do what we need to do. You know, two hours, I believe, is a good time. We do our two hour practice. Those who want to stay back in alignment, drink and party, that's up to them. Those who want to go home, 
they get to go home. The parents who are going to pick up their kids, they don't have to pick them up at 2 o'clock anymore. You know, they come and pick them up at 9.30, and, you know, everybody wins. Um, and I said, it's been working for us. Um, uh, well, I, I can't speak for all of the bands, but it has it. been working. I mean, I bring up the rote stuff mainly as an, in, it's an insecurity of mine. Like I, I know how hard it was for me when I went to Trinidad the first time and had, there was a guy named Almond St. Rose, who's a seconds player with FaZe. And he would, he just was yelling at me and he kept calling me a computer. He's like, put it in your computer. And that's what he kept saying. And I, would, and I, I did a one-handed roll at one point. He's like, knock off that Norel shit. And he's like screaming at me. Like, and it was like, I'm 19 years old. I have no idea what anything is. I saw Andy Norel do it once. I was like, okay, cool. And he like slapped the sticks out of my hands, but it changed my life. Like that, that, that was an experience I never had, but I, I, I worry that because there's no real method jot it down like everything you laid out to me is a method and you need to write that somebody needs to write that book because i think the cleveland orchestra i think the new york phil should teach one tune by road every year i mean i think beethoven seven would sound completely different if they learned it by rote you know like and the only reason they don't is because there's a union clock and we have a score you know that's silly but like if in 200 years ensembles including chamber music groups including string quartets um it doesn't matter it just feels like i mean i want that method book so as soon as you write it i will buy it and uh yeah, right. your first customer <laughs> um because i think it'll change i think that when you talk the culture thing has always been the the hardest thing for me it's like i can talk to them about food i can tell them how awesome roti is i can tell them about the accent and how you'll be in conversations where you don't understand anything anybody's saying but you know they're speaking english like all of those things are important cultural things but the way the music is actually handed to the players is something that I think just by default isn't able to happen much because culturally I come from the middle of a cornfield where a score was handed to me. I learned both of them, uh, that, that, that tune from a score. I had to write in all my note names and I had no, I, I just was like, it was the same thing to me as, you know, a Bach cello suite. I was just like, well, I don't know how to read Bach cello suite either. I'll, I guess I'll, you know, this, I'll just do this. Yeah. But I think, yeah. I think, you know, important. if you learn, like for us who learned, you know, via rote initially and then, learned how to sight read afterwards. Uh, I really think that we get the best of both worlds. So like, you know, because we retain so easily, I remember like when you go to these um, like guest performer, these schools, most of them have a feature panorama tune that they would do. Um, And all I just need to do is just listen to that on the plane. And when I get there, I play the entire tune. You know, I'll have the score to guide the notes, but you know, you already have all the phrases and everything inside your head. You remember what it sounds like. So it's just so easy to see the score and, you know, and play. Um, so as I always say that, you know, being able to, to be yeah, proficient at rote learning, um, certainly, it certainly helps. You know, it certainly helps. But, I mean, I don't think one is better than the other. What I would definitely promote is that having the ability to, to do both um, and to do both well is something that, you know, should be encouraged. I think, I think just as you were saying, I think everybody needs to, to have some sort of experience with rote learning. Well, and I think the, you know, my experience, I learned how to read music before I learned how to listen to it. And I would say that my ability to sight read, I think if you put a panorama in front of me, I can sight read it on double, not on lead, on double seconds, I could sight read any panorama you put in front of me. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't support my rote learning skill set. Like mm. I think the uh, would if I was steeped in the rote learning and could also sight read a panorama, it's like the other reinforces the other, not the other way around. Right, right. Like being able to read music doesn't mean you can just listen to something and play it. 
you yeah. can learn how to do that. And I have, I, I think, anyway, I wish, I think every classical percussionist or every musician should have to spend one year in your band in Hell's Gate and mm. just learn to by row. And then they can go on to do whatever it is they wanted to do, but just have that experience and they'll be better off. Our doors are open. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yuko, I, you know, um, Khan, we've, we've taken 51 minutes of your life here and I, I want to be respectful of the rest of your time here. Yuko, do you have any um, specific questions for Khan as we're, we're coming down the home stretch sure. here? Yeah, so Khan, what would you say are uh, positive and unique uh, part about Pan in Antigua? And as a, uh, you know, director, like what are the challenges that you face and how do you try to um, make like seek solution for those challenges? Ah, that's a hard question. I know. Um, so you asked, so the first part of it asking. Like what's what, unique, what's positive about like, um, yeah, panning on okay, TV. Let's, let's deal with that first. So what is um, one of the good things that, are still that is still happening is the interest by the young people. Um, Excellent. So with that, I mean, when you have young people interested, I mean, again, there are people right now, I know, Aisha is at school. They, yep. uh, well, Zara and um, Ariel have just finished at UV. There's um, um, Robert Simmons, um, um, Jawan Henry. Um, uh, what's the name? Oh, gosh. There are about four or five of them at UV. Uh, wow. Yeah. Then I know a whole bunch that are trying to get in as well. Um, so, you know, it. it we, I think that we're heading in the right direction. Antigua is very small. Um, Antigua has just about uh, 100,000, less than 100,000 um, people. You know, so you're having all these young people that are interested, not just in music, but in furthering the art form. And all of them have this different perspective, not different perspective, sorry, but a different focus. You know, you know some want to work on here. You know, Aisha is very interested in the pan building, tuning. Dawan, whose father is a pan builder, um, that's Veron Henry. Jawan is actually more interested in improvising and performing. Um, Dimitri is very interested in writing, composing for the instrument. So, you know, there's just all of these people are, are in different places and, and things. Robert Simmons yeah. is very interested in the management of, of, of steel bands, um, you know, from a practical point of view, not so much, you know, in terms of accounting and things like that, but in terms of just managing and teaching and that kind of stuff. So they all having young people that are very interested there that's i think is uh, an amazing start um outside of that what we'd have seen is that more and more steel bands are now trying to because what we've been pushing uh, myself uh, i consider i'm one of the persons that would have started with this mindset uh, but what we're trying to push is we're trying to get away from the the unnecessary rivalry which has sort of hampered the development um so Trust me, when it comes to competition, I love steel, I love panorama, right? Mm -hmm. I love panorama. I love, you know, you know, yeah, we're gonna win this one, we're gonna take this one. Just for fun, just for kicks, right? It's, you know, I'll be like, you know, yeah. but um, outside of the competition, I think that we need to find a way to be a bit more connected. So what we've been doing is um, you're finding more and more steel band um, events happening. Prior to COVID, you know, there are like six, seven, eight. Um, Hell's Gate alone is putting on four, Panache is putting on quite a few, Halcyon is putting on, Gemini is putting on. So that is much more than you would have seen even 10 years ago. Mm. All right. So, you know, seeing that, you know, seeing, seeing that growth is something that we can um, always be yeah, thankful for. It's one of those positives coming out. Um, 
what some of the issues that I'm having, though, um, generally is the, and not just from culture, the director, but just in the steel band fraternity. I don't think that um, between our association and some of the older minds in the art form, I don't think that much is being done to try to take the art form and the people within it to the next level. Okay. Um, the individually, you know, there's some people doing some things, but I mean, uh, our association really only operates during the carnival season to argue with the government for money. At least that's what I see. Um, I've seen areas where we where they try to boycott the competition um, a month or two weeks before the competition. At that point in time, you know, all of these young people, all of these forces would already been in play. And, you know, at that point is when you want to call. I think, you know, they, we have to think much bigger. Um, I'd love to see, you know, much more camaraderie in putting on not just events, but programs on a national level. And this is, you know, between me as a fan player and now me as the director of culture, because I do have people within my ministry that are supposed to deal with that. And I'm not confident that that is being done, uh, right? Because I can't just focus on PAN alone because there's so many, I came here and met so many issues with all the different art forms mm -hmm. and just trying to see how best we can um, save something, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I just find that there's a, we're too relaxed with what's happening in the extra-regional societies. I mean, knowing that um, Virginia has this entire pan fest, and yeah. I, I, kudos to them, right, um, and for what they're doing. I mean, there are people doing amazing things all over the world. You know, there's um, Birch Creek. Yeah. Birch Creek, mm -hmm. Birch Creek, you know, putting on these amazing summer programs. I mean, all of these universities are putting on these amazing concerts, bringing in all of these... Um, uh, brilliant minds in the steel pan art form, not just for them to play and the university to make a dollar, but to really expose people, the, 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 the musicians within the art form to all of a different side of the instrument, a more higher level side of the instrument. So, I mean, we can now start looking at building on top of these people, you know, the Len Bougdichard of the world. I mean, you've experienced it, so you know, these are what, this is what's possible, and we need to now start looking at moving ahead from there people like Andy Akio and so yeah just doing so much different things you know yeah. um, I was explaining to um, some of the people here I was like do you guys realize there's pan on tiny desk because I absolutely love tiny desk right mm -hmm. I said do you realize there's still pan on tiny desk They're like no you have to be crazy you mean tiny desk you're talking about no, NPS I said yes go on there you see Jonathan Scales is on, yeah. on, is on tiny desk and that's a huge thing for me Right, because you know, you look at all these big names coming across Tiny Desk, and Jonathan Scales, he didn't just go on to Tiny Desk during COVID. You know, he was on, you know, before. And yeah. I'm saying is, you know, these as far as we go to Japan, um, went to Japan in 2019, and there are people. When we got there, well, we didn't um, source the instruments. We just told them what we needed, and when we got there, there are these instruments with the contracts in the instrument, and you know. Um, pan sticks, how to key the instruments, how to set up this. How, um, I mean, not that we needed it, but there are people out there that are renting instruments to visitors that are coming oh. in. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people out there that are still innovating in terms of stands that manage the stands that manage yeah. those. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I think that here we're so focused on the wrong things, right? Our focus is, is placed in the wrong area and we should be focused on development. One of the things that irks me for the Caribbean is still arguing about who first created the pan. At this point, who cares? Like, at this point, who cares? In my view, 
I mean, yes, understand and appreciate the history. Right, right. That continuous fight and argue over who first, I think that should not be the focus at this point. Right. Yeah, we should focus on the future and just like where you are we where are we going? going? Because here's what I mean. The one they always speak about the Japanese, right? And the Swiss. I know, I know, I know. You know the Japanese here in Antigua, the Japanese people are running away with those things. They're running away with those things. I know, okay. and I happen to be Japanese. <laughs> I'm like, well, these people. These people are just trying to see. You know, they've learned about the instrument. They love the instrument, and they're just trying to see where they can take it. That is all. That is all. And we're here focusing about who first. Like, we will literally have argument. Because I don't know if you know Josh, but Antigua has uh, um, an extremely important role in the development of steel pan globally. Talk to, talk to me like I'm two. Assume I know nothing. Right? So Antigua has, a, uh, well, I was going to repeat the same statement. But we do have a, a, um, an extremely important role in the development of steel pan and steel pan music globally. Right? Now, in 1949, um, Hell's Gate Seal Orchestra was chosen to represent the Caribbean at the World Festival of Britain. I think it was in 1951, 1952, right? That is when it was slated. At that time, TASPA was not formed. Right, TASPA was in 51. Right. No, um, at the time, because um, I actually went to the archive in Trinidad and I found an article in the Sunday Guardian that said um, it had, it just spoke about how progressive Antiguan steel bands were at that time. And it, it was entitled, I think, um, steel bands in Antigua equals or surpasses, equals or surpasses that of Trinidad steel bands. And this is a Trinidad newspaper. Mm. This is not an Antigua steel that, Those are fighting words in Trinidad. <laughs> <Good Lord. laughs> right? So, you know, the um, uh, Antigua would have, their, I mean, in the early years, our instruments sounded different. Um, there are rumors that it sounded better. Um, Dr. Eric Williams at the time, and uh, I think Hell's Gate and Brute Force were in Trinidad in, I think it was in the 50s or so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it was somewhere around that time. It's not 50s, early 60s, but I think it was in the 50s. Uh, it had to have been in the 50s. And, you know, he would have said to Desperados at the time, you know, you guys need to get your drums to sound like Antigua drums. Mm. I spent a, a long, long time. TASPO was um, apparently formed because they didn't have one single group that was um, good enough to represent. And they went around and found all of the best uh, from all of the bands and formed this group. Yeah, in uh, addition to because of all the violins and, and the, the, right, the yeah. tried to bring it together. Because um, we actually had some conversations about this in our steel pan history and development class while I was at UE as well. Um, and it's just you know amazing to see uh, like some of the first recordings that you've heard, even in some of the cartoons, like Tom and Jerry, were from Antiguan recordings done by the Smithsonian mm. and Emery Cook, yeah. right? And you can still find that album selling for premium dollar. I think they're like $21 for the album right now. But I have, I have all of those albums. But these albums were done um, a long time ago. I think it was in the middle 50s or so, 55, 56. I have to go and double check the dates. But those are some of the earliest recordings of Steel Pan. And Steel Pan was... I mean, these people were, were, were recording with like Dot Evans, and I think Dot Evans is from Trinidad, if I'm not mistaken, right? Singing jazz standards in the middle 50s, mm. right? And performing, you know, um, um, autumn leaves and these kind of stuff in the middle 50s. You know, they would have been able to, here in Antigua, would have experienced Vera Griffith, the same Lieutenant Vera Griffith that would have worked with Casper back 
um, in the early 50s as well. So there, there are so many things. And, you know, um, there are mm -hmm. other rumors about who first put to, um, yeah. rubber on base sticks and that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily need to get into that. Right. I but just keep something I thought, you know, Aisha was say, saying, uh, telling me uh, that the first competition, steel band competition, happened in 49, which is like way before, like, you know, yeah. that Panorama, you yeah. know, in 63. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. You know, yeah, so much was happening in Antigua. And I wish, yeah. you know, we knew more about it. Or like, you know, there's more like documents on steel pan in Antigua and Barbuda. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Khan, I'm yeah. wondering how many how many steel bands are there on the islands of Antigua and Barbuda? Um, in terms of community groups, I think right now active uh, about ten. Okay. Right? And that includes um, like panorama bands or that's yeah but that's a, i'm actually talking about this the panorama band. Got it. okay right. but those are the ones that are i mean there are other groups smaller groups you know five seven maybe up to ten that do like the hotel circuits and you know tours and things like that but in terms of community um bands as about ten of them and which is weird because in the well all the way up to the 60s up to the 70s there was literally a band almost on every corner Every every band had their own tuner and builder. Yeah, I right? should mention that as well. Yeah. And right now on island, we only have one and a half, <laughs> you know, um, tuner because the the other guy is older, you know, and he's he's really getting down. You can tell, you know. I mean, he spends forever tuning one band, um, <laughs> you know. So it, it just, you know, we are, we are still focused on the wrong thing, right? We still we still you know we. One one of the reasons why we'd have seen that downfall in that 70s, 80s period is because at that time, a lot of bands were outsourcing everything. So they would get a lot of players, they would get the arranger, the tuner, builder, and money is dried up, right? It was a time where, you know, sponsors weren't able to give as much. And because of that, you know, a lot of things, and then a lot of people migrated as well, right? A lot of influential people would have migrated. So, you know, there, there's some issues. I What I've been trying to to to... Well, conversations that we've been having now with a lot of the people on the island is how do we move forward, right? Okay, I don't care that Hell's Gate would have won 21 championships, right? I don't care that the next band that has um, championships 13, you know, so you're looking at what, eight championships away. Oh, I don't care that, you know, this band um, would have represented at the, the Super Bowl, because we have a band here that played in Super Bowl in 72... In the 70s, the early 70s, yeah, right. Um, this is a halftime show, actually. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Um. Yeah. So you know, I I couldn't. When I say I don't care, I don't want you to get me wrong. It's, um, those things are, are useful information, and it also you know just gives us some perspective as to what used to happen, how bands would have grown, and what was happening at that point in time. At this point in time, let us try to see how we can first start documenting our history because a lot of the people who knows are now dying out. And as you know, you know, much of it just hasn't been written down. Outside of documenting that, how do we move forward? How do we start growing our art form holistically, right? So um, not just players, but arrangers, uh, um, tuners, builders. Um, how, how can we start doing more music, more content for the art form? I mean, is it that when um, Len Bookty Sharp, Ray Holman, and the others passed away, we stopped getting original music for the, for the instrument? That should not be the case, you know. I didn't call Liam's name because Liam is like 30 years old, so he has a long, a long way to go. <laughs> God willing, Liam will be here for a while. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, do we stop getting those, you know, those classic, simple, 
um, steel band tunes um, that we, we use all the time, you know, for concerts and for shows and that kind of stuff. No, I mean, how can we continue writing for the instruments? Oh, um, can we start transcribing more of the panorama tunes that are not scored out so that more people can get to enjoy them? When I look at recordings here in Antigua and Barbuda Harbor, listen, you listen to Antigua Panorama, you go on YouTube, and I can guarantee you, you're going to be like, what kind of school band is playing music here? Mm. And in reality, that is not the case. Like, when you listen to these bands, you know, you actually, it sounds totally different from on the recording. How can we start capturing these recordings, not just for resale, but, and this is the part that irks me, because most people just think about, oh, you know, um, we're going to try to get a good recording so that this particular band can win the competition. That is not the case at all. We need to get these good recordings so we can now start um, analyzing, yeah. right, transcribing, analyzing the music of some of the people who would have gone before. I have never heard a, a panorama tune earlier than 1991 in Antigua. And in the 90s, I've probably only heard two or three. The earliest recordings before that would have been 2003, 2004. So what happened to all of these uh -huh. CD competitions that happened all the way back in 1949? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yes, recordings would have been limited. Uh, well, in terms of equipment, would have been limited back then. But what happened in the 60s? Right, exactly. That they had so many glory days. Yeah. Right? And at that time, they were actually capturing more because it was so new, right? Steel bands used to perform two tunes at the Panorama. Wow. Yes, in Antigua, our Panorama is a two-tune Panorama, I think, all the way up until maybe the 80s or so. It's two tunes. Oh. You would play a classical. These people used to play um, Rhapsody in Blue for George Gershwin, um, the Messiah, any, all of those major classical works, mm -hmm. they play them. That's their first tune, and then their tune of choice is a, is a local calypso. Ah. The two-tune competition, and we can't get to hear That's it. That's unique. Yeah, so that's something unique to, like, Antigua, you know, pan scene. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the publishing thing, I mean, this, is the, this has been my, the thorn in my butt ever since I got hip to the, the scene in New York and the Brooklyn panoramas, and Kendall Williams is the first person to really sort of inject, get, get me injected into that scene. And then for 10 years, there were 10 to 12 panoramas, everything from Devon Stewart to Mark Brooks, Odie Franklin, Kendall, like Amon Pascal, like a bunch of folks would arrange it and then they just disappear. And then the next year would go by, 12 tunes get written from scratch and then disappear. The only, the only steel, the only panorama out of Brooklyn, the only Rangers panorama, there's two, that have been played by any other institution other than the band it was written for and arranged for is NYU, and it's Mark Brooks and Kendall Williams. Mm. And like, and that was after like me being like, we got to write this down so NYU can play it. This is an amazing panorama. And it's like, it's not that hard. Like, you got you to gotta write it down. And then what happens, it, well, no, and that's not true. And uh, Akron, University of Akron played Afilin. Like okay, three, yes, they did. Three yes, or four yes, years yes, ago. yes, yes. And it's like, mm -hmm. just in Brooklyn alone, there's 15, com and I kind of hate the word arranger, even though I know what it means, but it's like they're composers who are writing but, beautiful music and it just that's disappears. What it is, yeah. And it's like, if you, if like Beethoven's an arranger, Mahler was an arranger. He took folk songs and, and, and different, you know, Bartok arranged Hungarian right. folk songs, you know, like, right, right. but they were written down, and that's why folks now 200 years later can play it i want folks 200 years from now to just go to a website and be like oh cool concord cordis from uh 2009 hell's gate 
What'd they play that year? Oh man, that arrangement's awesome. I'd love to play that with my band. Click, click, click. Next thing you know, you get a video from some band in Missouri and you're like, you're playing it all wrong, but at least you're playing it. That's awesome. You know, like, and then that's yeah. what, that's what Mozart did there. His music gets picked up by somebody else and he comes in and is like, that's all wrong. And then 300 years later, here we are, you know, like yeah. that writing it down that to me, when we talk about moving things forward, if the ministry of culture in every country could just give like a hundred grand to be like, we are going for the next 20 years. This is our moonshot. We're publishing every piece that was arranged for every panorama this year. Yeah. Like, we're going to hire transcribers. We're going to hire people who can do engraving, who know Sibelius and Finale really well. And just like, just put all this stuff through the wood chipper so that we can get it out to other people to play it. Because it's that's where I see the most work going with the most amount of waste. At right, the end. Right, right. I mean, waste is maybe the wrong word, but it's like, it is a waste kind of <laughs> to do all that work. And then nobody else ever gets to, to even a sometimes even know that it happened. Right, right. Other than clicking, getting there from some YouTube algorithm, but right. if this music is up on up on a website right next to John Williams, right next to anything else you want to play, then I feel like that's where the conversation start. And again, that takes decades, but you know it's not going to happen right, tonight. Right, but right. anyway, that's where my head's been at that. When as you're talking about this stuff, it's like that's man. I mean, it's why when you know Cliff had some of his charts published, but not all of them. You know why? <laughs> that that bums me out and he's gone now and we can't we can't you know it's harder to get that stuff back now and i understand cliff was doing a lot of other things it's not like he wasted his time but yeah. to me that's the sort of biggest that's what that's the artery that's bleeding the most right now in the u.s is that most u.s bands program unless you're you have a trinidadian in your midst or somebody from the caribbean in your midst most bands are programming old Tom Miller charts from our boys from 20, 30 years ago, which are not bad, yeah. but it's 20 years ago. <laughs> There's yeah. all this new stuff happening. Um, and anyway, that's, that's my soapbox, but. Yeah, I do agree that you know, music definitely need to be, you know, transcribed so they can be properly archived. And, you know, so that's another reason to archive. So, you know, they can be revisited to analyze or perform, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just invite me. I'll just do it for free for you, Khan. Well, you can write it, but like for other steel bands and Antigua. Yeah, I actually write all of my arrangements. So. Yeah, yeah. So I figure like you, you, you're you, fine. Zara's yeah. fine, but yeah. Actually, I'm trying to put them out now because uh, it's been, um, I celebrated when 2019, I celebrated, well, a 10 year anniversary. So the idea was to put out all 10 of them um, on the, um, in 2020. And then COVID came. Yeah. And I got more busy than I was prior to COVID. <laughs> Crazy, right? I know, right? It, it yeah. feels like you should have had more time, but it's like now you're spending all your time on Zoom. Well, hey, um, Khan, yeah. this has been amazing, and I'm really grateful for your time, and I, I'm grateful to sort of get to meet you for the first time and chat. I, You know, Larry, every time I talk to Larry, he's just like, if you say anything mean to Concordus, I'm going to kill you. And I was like, why would I say anything mean to Concordus? Like, yeah. like, like you're, you're clearly... I actually called him by mistake. I actually called him by mistake um, last week. You did? I was oh. trying to call another Larry. Yeah, because I still have his number. Um, so I probably should give him a call. Too. Well, you're, you are loved and respected by everybody who met you. And so I, I came into this assuming it was yeah. going to be the same way. And I'm, I was, I'm yeah. absolutely grateful. I had an amazing time. time at Akron, man. Trust uh, um, me. But let yeah, me... this little boy, this little boy did change my life at Akron. That's, he didn't even know. It's my 
that's my alum. That's my undergrad. And so I, that's where I met Cliff. That's where, that's where I was in, when you were talking about Bugsy practicing, like people paying him to practice, I pick him up at the airport and he told me a story on his way, but he's like, he's like, you know how I practice? I was like, no. And he's like, well, I was in jail and I had to figure out how to practice. And I was like, what? You know, and this is like five minutes into meeting Bugsy. And he's like, each hand is a double second. I was like, okay. And he's like, G, high G or middle G, E flat, B. And I was like, okay. And he's like, C sharp. A, F. He's like, so when I'm doing this, he's like, he's playing all, and then same, the opposite on the left hand. He's like, so I had to sit. He was like, I was in my cell. And I didn't dig further as to why he was in jail, but he was just like, this is how I practice. So I can go like A flat major, A major. And so he's like, he's going through all this thing. And it's like, that seemed totally lunatic to me at that moment. But <laughs> it doesn't, knowing what yeah. I know about Bugsy now, it's like, it doesn't surprise me that he would figure out a way to keep raging on his double right. seconds, even if he was off right. of him. So, but that's, but Akron is where that's, you know, Liam or um, Bugsy and Cliff and all those folks mm. were exposed to me there. And I was exposed to them and it yeah. changed my life. So, and on yeah. that, and on that can, note, I'm going, sorry, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I mean, going to NIU was definitely, you know, a life-changing experience for me. Like, meeting Liam and Cliff and, and Yuko. I mean, as I said, that, I was telling you earlier about that experience. Just meeting them was just always encouraging. You know, always trying to uh, you know, see if he can push you better. I mean, Cliff sometimes gives you some rough talks, but it's always with good intentions. Yeah, yeah I miss him, miss him yeah. dearly. I've, dearly. I've loved you so yeah. much. Most of the ones I got from yeah. Cliff were at the Junction Eat. Um, that's where ah, <laughs> he always junction. paid, but you know, that's if yeah. I have a hard, if I had a hard chat with Cliff, it was usually at the junction eat. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Yuko, anything? I don't know. Yuko, yeah. Yuko, do you remember the, um, the place that we went this first day I was at, I was in, um, Illinois. A, a restaurant or like a restaurant. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't, a junction or. So, so no, we were at, um, Ovin Sycamore. Um, it's a breakfast place. Uh, oh, Egg Haven. Uh, Egg Haven, right? Yes, I have a very uh, joke to give you. I'm among a lot of other jokes, but I'll give you this one. <laughs> okay. So I've never been. The first time I went to the U.S. was when I went to NIU. I've never been to the U.S. prior, right? And I've been all over, right? I've been all over the Caribbean, but I've never been to the U.S. I get to the U.S. I mean, oh, you know, the, the cold confused me. So I decided. <laughs> The cold? I, we were at the, the cold, right. Yeah. So I've never been in the cold. I went to, um, we got to the airport. I had my winter jacket with me. And in the um, baggage claim was warm. So Cliff came inside and he said, you know, can put on your jacket. I said, I don't need to put on my jacket. It's warm. <laughs> He's like, no, you need to put on your jacket. We're going outside. I said, the place is warm. I don't need to put on my jacket. Anyway, you know, he cussed a bad word, put on my jacket. I put on my jacket and I get to the door and I felt like somebody slapped me with a bag of ice. At that time, I'm not thinking that they would have heaters on inside and because mm -hmm. outside is cold. As uh -huh. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I go to Egg Haven and the next day and they have hash browns on the menu. Mm -hmm. I've never experienced I thought it was hash brownies, right? I thought it was wheat, was wheat brownies. I was like, these people are selling weed brownies at, at six o'clock, um, seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. So Cliff asked me if I want them. I was like, no, I'm good. He's like, you don't eat them. I love them, you know. 
That's what Cliff was saying. I said, no, no, I can't believe you eat weed brownies at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's like, weed brownies? These aren't weed brownies. These are potato. <laughs> <laughs> Never had it. Well, yeah. uh, this well, Khan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And I just want to put in uh, just a, a sort of a, a request, and I think on behalf of myself and Yuko, that now that you're in the position of having students and you're in the Ministry of Culture, like if there are any students like yourself that you see that want to come and study in the U.S., obviously NIU is a, is, is a place to send them. But NYU has a now, mm. we have a degree program, uh, a pan-focused degree program that Kendall is running okay. starting in the fall. So okay. go to N go to NIU first, just out of loyalty. But if there's another student that you have, if anybody feels like coming and studying in New York would be I mean, a thing, um, it's good. Um, it's good to um, to open those options um, yeah. because what happened is, I mean, I, I don't know the program so much. I know I follow you, Josh, so I know some of the things that you guys would have been doing at NYU. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's an option for those people who maybe have family in that New York area, yep. right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, so that opens a different possibility, you know, um, for them. So, I mean, that's an option. Yeah, I'm happy that that, that is some. So I'll definitely pitch it idea to those who are, who are willing as well. It's uh, we have yeah. a student, and if they don't like it, they can just transfer to NIU. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, you're not going to get any argument from me on that. Front. I will never argue with somebody who wants to study at NIU. But it, it has been nice. I mean, it's been one of the things as at at that program that I felt a real being so close to like one of the largest Caribbean populations in the world. And running a steel pan there that doesn't deal with culture and, and steel pan it, as a as a real focus would be a real uh, disservice. So um, anyway, it's been slow slow going and, and slow building it, but it's it's uh, I think it would be a good home if the, if you have any students who want to come to a place and yeah study classical percussion, but also feel like oh yeah I know what I know these people I know what this is like I I'm not I'm not alone here you know what I mean. Um, and New it's, York City sounds pretty good to me. Well, and you it's, know, to DeKalb, New York City. Maybe <laughs> just know. a little warmer in the summer than DeKalb. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe. A little, hey, listen, just a I would not change DeKalb for the world, man. Like, I would live in DeKalb. Yeah, like, I like if I get off of the job, I would live in DeKalb. Trust me. I just like, I mean, I like that it's close enough to the city. That is, yeah, I need yeah. to go to the city. I can yeah. just drive a few minutes to get to the city. Yeah. You know, but it's far enough you know, away from the crime and the busyness. Right, that is true. You know, have friends over and we, we chill. I, I like the cab, you know. I've been dreaming about going back to live, maybe someday. Yes, please, <laughs> come back. Come back, Con. <laughs> Bring your family. If I, if I get offered a job, you never know. There you go. Yeah, you never know. You know, we may yeah. be expanding it. Who knows? Liam may have his knees broken by a strange white man with a beard <laughs> and then you'll uh, you'll have a job you know <laughs> well hey yeah, uh, yeah. we'll let you go thank you yuko again obviously thank you so much for your time yeah this thank you great and uh, thank you for yeah. introducing me to khan and khan thank you for your time please stay healthy and safe and i hope that we can cross paths and yeah. tip up a, a rum and coke at some point here in the future and and play together sure sure really sure fun yeah yeah definitely yeah. sooner rather than later please please all righty, take it easy. Good to chat with you both. Okay, you too. All right, have a good one. Okay, bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And he has a second parcel here, and it's not ringing enough for me. <laughs> <laughs>